give those guys a hand. They do a good job with our... Can we give our worship team a hand too? Come on, it was powerful today. Those guys, those guys get here a little before 7 a.m. Um, just to come and serve you two services. And so we appreciate them and, and honor them for their work as well as everybody out there. So we're glad to see you today. My name is Chris Payne. I'm the lead pastor here at City Life Church. And excited, he gets paid, he gets excited to, uh, to uh, see you today. It's good to see all the faces. Uh, if you're new with us, we're especially glad you're here and we got some special things for you. If you are new and uh, you're going, what, what are you guys up to? We are in week three of a series we're calling, I Want to Believe, But. And we're tackling some of the doubts, um, some of the frustrations, some of the things that keep us from believing in God or maybe taking a next step in trusting in God. And uh, if, if you don't believe in God here, you're welcome. We want to talk. We want to dialogue. And that's, that's really what we're all about. One of our values here at City Life Church is authenticity. We love to talk. And we love, if you do believe in God, if you are a Christian in here, we love to challenge your beliefs, not to uh, make you not believe or doubt, but to help you firm and get a foundation of belief. In fact, we believe in foundations. We have what's called a purple book and the biblical foundations and encouraging you to dig down deep and know what you believe and why you believe because now more than ever you need to know that. With so many thoughts and ideologies and, and things going around, you need to know why you believe what you believe. I, I remember when I first came to know Christ, I was challenged actually by a Jehovah's Witness and he had, he had his Bible out and I had mine out, and we were going back and forth, and he was just destroying me. I did not know what I believed. I was like, Trinity, yeah, here it is, right here. Wait, where's the Trinity? I couldn't explain the things that I said I believe, and it challenged me to a point of crying and frustration. And I remember going to my stepdad, who was my youth pastor at the time, and saying, give me the answers. And he's like, nope, you find them. Best thing that ever happened to me because it made me really know why I believe what I believe, which what we're going to talk about today, this I want to believe, but what about evil and suffering in this world? If you don't have a good understanding of evil and suffering, this is one of the most, one of the most pivotal things that keep people from ultimately trusting in God. Not only on an intellectual level, the problem of evil and suffering, but also on an emotional level, probably more so on an emotional level. Today, I want to tackle some of the intellectual problems with evil and suffering, and I want to try to give you some help to be able to have a firm foundation on what this is, maybe to build a firm foundation going from today and to explain and give a little bit of a defense of why we can believe that God can exist and evil can exist. David Hume, an 18th century philosopher, stated the logical problem of evil when he inquired about God. And here's what he said. Is he willing, is God willing to prevent all evil, but not able? Then he is impotent. He's not all-powerful. Is he able and all-powerful, but not willing, then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing, whence then is evil? Here's how this intellectual problem that is also an emotional problem, but here's how it logically challenges us, and it looks like this in four points. 
a good God would destroy evil. If he's really good, he would get rid of all of evil. An all-powerful God could destroy evil. So if he's good, he would want to. If he's all-powerful, he could do it. Evil is not destroyed. We see evil everywhere in our world. Therefore, there cannot possibly be such a good and powerful God. Now, this is a good question. This is a good statement to think about, to challenge us. And on the surface, I think things we need to discuss. I know our campus ministry, we've got some campus directors here, Sarah and Earl and Carrie and some of our students. They do weekly God tests and they take their students and they do God tests. If you don't want God test, they say, hey, you want to get tested? And people are like, tested for what? Especially on campus, right? And uh, they're like, well, God tests, you know, for, for God. And they're like, what is that? And so what it is, is it's 10 questions and it starts with, do you believe in God? And the goal is a dialogue. The goal is not just to preach at you. But to dialogue and talk about and kind of break down some worldviews and let's talk this through. Because there's, there is ample evidence and there is reasonable faith. And so let's talk about it. And so they'll ask, do you believe in God? And you can actually download the app. I think it's free. You can take the test right now. Actually, wait till I'm done. But you can take the test. You can, you can go through it. And the first question, do you believe in God? And, and depending on what you say, yes or no, there's a set of 10 questions that deal with the no's. And there's a set of 10 questions that deal with the yes. Well, I know when I've been on campus, I had one individual, I believe he was getting his bachelor's um, in biology, and I was talking to him about God, and we had some just great dialogue. He didn't believe, he was an atheist, and uh, had all sorts of beliefs, and so we're going through the questions and, and really having some good dialogue, and I feel like we're, we're really getting there. And, and finally, as I'm kind of challenging some of his thoughts and beliefs, and we're going there, he, he turns and looks at me, he says, you know what, okay, you know, I see what you're doing here. No, no, he's like, I, I, I see what's going on. Like, I, there's, there's some good things that you're saying. I get it. He said, but I just can't believe in a God that would allow evil and suffering the way that I see evil and suffering in our world. And, of course, we talk about starvation and all the things going on. But it gets down to he had an aunt who was a devout Christian, loved God, prayed, and he looked up to her. And she was so loving towards him, and she got cancer and suffered and died. And so for him, it became an emotional problem, but then turned intellectual. It became something personal where he's going, how could this person who professes to love and know your God, who is loving and powerful, and yet she gets cancer, suffers, and dies. I don't want to have anything to do with a God like that because that God's not good or that God's not powerful. Or ultimately, some philosophers would say, evil cannot exist with God at the same time. They cannot coexist together. Because if God is good and he created the world, then he created evil and that would make him evil. Why would he do that? I was watching a 30 for 30 this last week. If you ever watched some of these, and there was one on, it was like one of the shorter ones, and it was a, a little kid who was, I think, around four, and, um, and uh, she got leukemia. And she's, she's beating it, but you, you think about those types of things that go on, like evil for evil, like just 
if you got a DUI this week, we'll pray for you and we're with you. But like you probably deserve a punishment. You deserve some kind of thing that happened to you because you did something that wasn't smart, that wasn't wise. And we can get that kind of thing, but not the evil of somebody that's innocent. And it seems like, what is the point? This is just a gratuitous evil. It's not going to lead to anything ultimately good. And that's the stance, and that's ultimately what you can feel when you're suffering under the oppression of evil and suffering. When you look around our world and you see things that you go, there's no way a good God could allow that. This is a real problem. And uh, I was talking to Fikri Yusuf. If you know Fikri, um, he'll actually be here in June. He is a pastor in Every Nation, which is the family of churches we're a part of. And uh, he travels all over. And he goes with Rice Brooks, who teaches in different universities, uh, has his book tour, does God's Not Dead. He wrote this book called God's Not Dead, different than the movie. But uh, he talks about God and, and answers questions in universities all over the world. And I asked Fikri, hey, what's the number one thing that you get challenged when a student raises their hand or, or professor or somebody in a university is asking questions about God and the validity and evidence for God? And he said, by far the number one question is the problem of evil and suffering. How could a good God create evil? How could a good God allow evil, and if he's good, he would destroy it. And if he can, and he doesn't, then he's evil himself, and that's what evil is. We have a lot of evidence for evil. Even though it seems pointless, maybe horrendous in its intensity, but are there actually valid reasons for a good and powerful God to allow evil? This is actually, in philosophical terms, answered pretty well if you dive in. Because all you need to see is look for the, the problem. And is it, is it even probable that a good God could allow evil? And, and the answer is yes. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Why does he allow it, I think, is usually a bad question when you're in the middle of suffering. Why, why, why? But ultimately, that he can and that he can use it, I think is a good question. I'm going to read this, an article that I found that talks about this, and I really enjoy this. Read this along with me. It says this, the key to the resolution of this apparent conflict is to recognize that when we say God is all-powerful, we do not imply that he is capable of doing anything imaginable. True scripture states that with God all things are possible, but scripture also states that there are some things God cannot do. For instance, God cannot lie. Neither can he be tempted to sin, nor can he tempt others to sin. In other words, he cannot do anything that is out of character for a righteous God. Neither can he do anything that is out of character for a rational being in a rational world. Certainly, even God cannot undo the past or create a square triangle or make what is false true. He cannot do what is irrational or absurd. He cannot create a married bachelor, for instance, right? 
And it is on this basis that we conclude that God could not eliminate evil without at the same time rendering it impossible to accomplish other goals which are important to him. Certainly for God to create beings in his own image who are capable of sustaining a personal relationship with him, they must be beings who are capable of freely loving him and following his will without coercion. Love or obedience on any other basis would not be love or obedience at all, but mere compliance. But creatures who are free to love God must also be free to hate or ignore him. Creatures who are free to follow his will must also be free to reject it. And when people act in ways outside of God, great evil and suffering is the ultimate result. This line of thinking is known as the free will defense concerning the problem of evil. One of the main problems of evil is where does evil even come from? Again, if God creates everything and he's good and he's creating everything good and he's creating giraffes and man and people and creation as we see in Genesis and evil comes out of it, then God must be evil. Well, the question to pose is what is evil? Of course, my favorite author I think gives a great definition for what evil is. C.S. Lewis says this, evil cannot exist on its own. Only good can. No one has ever done evil just for evil's sake, just to be evil. Now, you might say, I don't know, I got a cousin. He was nuts. He was just mean. Here's the thing, though. Good, you can be good and do good just because of goodness, out of the goodness that you get from it and that you want to see out of it. But evil cannot stand on its, on its own and be done just for evil. You are getting some kind of good out of it. So perhaps someone did some heinous thing to somebody else and you say that was absolutely evil. And it was, but evil was just merely spoiled goodness because what they wanted out of the person was control or power or, or money or some kind of substance that in and of itself is good, but taken to the extreme ultimately for selfish purposes becomes evil. So goodness can stand by itself, but evil can't because all evil is merely spoiled goodness. It's it's not bad to want control. The Bible actually says the spirit, one of the fruits of the spirit is self-control. He wants you to be able to have a sense of control. You're not ultimately in control. But control is not bad. When you take it in a selfish way and spoil it, it becomes evil. And you take control other, over, over people. Power in and of itself is not bad. It's not evil. If it was, then God would be evil because he is all-powerful. But power, and it's how it's used. And if it's abused, it can become evil. But the act in of itself is good. Money, the Bible doesn't say money is the root of evil. It says the love of money. It's the spoiled goodness. Money of itself can be used for a good. But when it's spoiled and ultimately for selfish purposes being used, it is evil. And so God didn't just necessarily create evil, but he created choice. In fact, in, in Deuteronomy, he would say this, this day I put before you life and death, death, and like in the back of the book that you had in your, in your math class, hey, choose life. Here's the answer. 
You've got life, you've got death. You have a choice. And he did not create you as a robot to be perfectly compliant and never mess up because he wanted people that would choose him. He wanted people that ultimately, as he first showed his love, as he first initiates by the Holy Spirit, so it's his act first, period. But then we have a response. We have a choice. And it's out of that choice that even at the beginning, men chose evil. But God allows it. Let me give you some logical reasons. We're going to go intellectual. Logical reasons for evil and God to actually coexist. Number one, we are not in a good position to assess the probability of whether God has morally sufficient reasons for the evils that occur. This, this statement is hitting this question of, if, if I see something that is gratuitously evil, in other words, it doesn't look like there's any way for it to be redeemed, it makes no sense, leukemia of a four-year-old, I don't see how that suffering can lead to any kind of good. So therefore, God must be either non-existent or evil is not logical because you do not know every variable and fact going on within the context of what's happening with that person and ultimately maybe what God will redeem and do in 50 years based on that specific instance. And it it is actually extremely, stick with me, extremely prideful to say that because of that act and I can't see anything that could possibly be good come out of it in my finite understanding, therefore God must not exist or God's evil. That is such such a prideful statement to actually proclaim you understand and see all things and all the variables. And in fact, you and I cannot do that. I want to give you an example of this with a video. If you've ever seen the movie Benjamin Button, there's an interesting part in the middle of it where it shows different variables and acts that led to suffering. But it's a very interesting way the writers did it. Check this out. Sometimes we're on a collision course and we just don't know it. Whether it's by accident or by design, there's not a thing we can do about it. A woman in Paris was on her way to go shopping. But she had forgotten her coat, went back to get it. When she had gotten her coat, the phone had rung. So she had stopped to answer it and talked for a couple of minutes. While the woman was on the phone, Daisy was rehearsing for a performance at the Paris Opera House. And while she was rehearsing, the woman off the phone now had gone outside to get a taxi. Now, a taxi driver had dropped off a fare earlier and had stopped to get a cup of coffee. And all the while, Daisy was rehearsing. And this cab driver, who dropped off the earlier fare and had stopped to get the cup of coffee, had picked up the lady who was going shopping and had missed getting the earlier cab. The taxi had to stop for a man crossing the street who had left for work five minutes later than he normally did because he forgot to set his alarm. While that man, late for work, was crossing the street, Daisy had finished rehearsing and was taking a shower. And while Daisy was showering, the taxi was waiting outside a boutique for the woman to pick up a package, which hadn't been wrapped yet because the girl who was supposed to wrap it had broken up with her boyfriend the night before and forgot. When the package was wrapped, the woman, who was back in the cab, was blocked by a delivery truck. All the while, Daisy was getting dressed. 
The delivery truck pulled away and the taxi was able to move. While Daisy, the last to be dressed, waited for one of her friends who had broken a shoelace. While the taxi was stopped, waiting for a traffic light, Daisy and her friend came out the back of the theater. And if only one thing had happened differently, if that shoelace hadn't broken, or that delivery truck had moved moments earlier, or that package had been wrapped and ready because the girl hadn't broken up with a boyfriend, or that man had set his alarm and got up five minutes earlier, or that taxi driver hadn't stopped for a cup of coffee, or that woman had remembered her coat and got into an earlier cab, Daisy and her friend would have crossed the street and the taxi would have driven by. Life being what it is, a series of intersecting lives and incidents, out of anyone's control. That taxi did not go by, and that driver was momentarily distracted. And that taxi hit Daisy. And her leg was crushed. We are not in a good position to assess the probability of whether God has morally sufficient reasons for the evils that occur. As finite persons, we are limited in time, space, intelligence, and insight. But the transcendent and sovereign God sees the end of, from the beginning and providentially orders history so that his purposes are ultimately achieved through human free decisions. In order to achieve his ends, God may have to put up with certain evils along the way, Evils which appear pointless to us within our limited framework may be seen to have been just and justly permitted within God's wider framework. Now, we saw evidence of that in this clip real quick in the suffering and evil, but how many of you can recall of all the things, if you really knew, all the variables that it took to get you to places of success, of triumph? Of goodness, this is what we talk about in the plan of God and trusting God ultimately. And yet, when it comes to suffering, it's harder for us to see because especially in the moment, I don't know, but how vain and conceited it is to proclaim that there's absolutely no way God can redeem an evil that I see in my limited finite ability and knowledge. Some might see that and say, how in the world could that be? I see, and I see God at work, able to do his will ultimately, and that's a God I want to trust and love and submit to. Another logical reason for evil and God to coexist is the Christian faith entails doctrines that increase the probability of the coexistence of God and evil. In fact, Christianity blends these two together very, very well with a worldview that gives you a framework for actual life versus just some kind of like Wizard of Oz case scenario where you're going, what is the point of that? It actually works in life and you go, wow, it makes sense and it's reasonable. One of the main doctrines or understanding of Christianity is the chief purpose, get this, the chief purpose of life is not happiness, but the knowledge of God. Now, this hurts for us in America. America. 
Because our chief purpose is the pursuit of our own happiness, ultimately. And, and does God not want you to be happy? Well, sure he does. But like a good father, he's, his chief purpose isn't your happiness. And if you think it is, you're in big trouble in this world. In fact, if you say, God should make everything work out in my life and be comfortable, and why in the world would this happen? Why wouldn't you do that? Why, why would you do that, God? Realistically play that out in normal life. A kid who has parents that give them everything they always want creates a kid that is a spoiled brat. That no one in here would go, man, I want to be like that. Everyone would go, oh, yeah, stay away from them. They think the world revolves around them. In fact, we use this term in, in doctrine in our church a lot in, in the term of cat and dog theology. In case you don't know what this is, those of you cat lovers, I apologize. But cat-dog theology says this. You're either looking at God in one of two ways. If you're a cat and your master takes care of you, feeds you, clothes you, gives you everything you need. A cat's perspective is, I must be God. He takes care of me, he holds me, does everything I want, and cats only let you pet them when they want you to pet them. Whereas a dog, same instance, the master takes care of them, clothes them, pets them, buys little purses to carry around, and the dog doesn't go, I must be God. But because you do those things, you must be God. You must be my master. That is the correct theology. The problem with most of our theology in our world is it's created for us and about us. And just to say, take care of me. Do everything for me. As if God, that's his number one goal. I'm just the human pet and you're here to take care of me. Not me to serve you. Because you do ultimately take care of me. But you have the best plans for me. Even if I don't feel like I like it. In the moment. Another thing, a doctrine in Christianity, mankind is in a state of rebellion against God and his purposes. How can evil and God coexist? Well, the Bible pretty much makes it make sense in this sense. God created everything good, but he gave us choice. And sin, like a disease, slowly came in and encapsulated the whole world. And, and it's not that if if. God would just send somebody that would be perfect and give us perfect teaching, like the next self-help book, that, man, that's the one that really took me over the edge and made me who I was. And, and we have this idea, like if that happened and we had that person, then, then we would all embrace them and we would run and everyone would be good. The problem is Christianity says God actually sent that person, his name Jesus, and we didn't embrace him, but we killed him. Because we didn't want a master, we wanted to be master and there is a problem of evil, and the problem resides in us. One of the founders of Every Nation, Rice Brooks, as he travels, he would say this because he asked this question. Why wouldn't a good God just destroy all of evil? And, and he, he asked the question, well, the problem with that is if he destroyed all evil, he would have to kill you and me. Because we have evil in us. And if you don't know that and you think, well, those people are evil and I'm not... There's some humbling that needs to take place because we've all sinned. We've all fallen short. 
anything that person has succumbed to, I could probably see myself ultimately succumbing to that if given the circumstances. And yet, through the grace of God, he has saved me. What a beautiful thing that the actual problem of evil becomes a solution that God provides. Another doctrine of Christianity, the knowledge of God spills over into eternal life. So the Christian view is this. This life is not all that there is. Jesus promised eternal life to all who place their trust in him as their Lord and Savior. In the afterlife, God will reward those who have been born and who have born through their suffering and had the courage and trust to trust in him through the suffering. I love Martin Luther, a quote that he says is one of my favorite quotes. He says, I live for two days, this day and that day. He had this eternal perspective, this heavenly perspective that it's not just about tomorrow, but this day, what, what I'm doing today and what God's doing today, right now. And then that day, that day that I will be with him. And I think about that day. And that helps me actually get through this day. In the successes and the failures, in the cross and the resurrection, in the good and the bad. Because I know this is just a momentary light affliction. So the question is, so why, why do we suffer? What good could evil possibly do? Does it just accomplish nothing? And I think one of the greatest verses, you've probably heard it before, Romans 8.28 says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. The fact that evil and God can exist, and in fact, God can use evil and suffering in our life and bring good out of it, is fascinating. And it's very true. And let me say this, if you're going through suffering right now, and you don't have a foundation of this understanding, it's going to be hard to go through it. Because you need to have a little bit of understanding in order to be able to say, okay, I can go through this because of blank. Let me give you some, some good purposes that suffering promotes. Number one, suffering can provide an opportunity for God to display his glory. To make evident his mercy, faithfulness, power, and love in the midst of painful circumstances. John 9, 1 through 3. We're going to go through a lot of scripture here. says this. This is Jesus. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this man and his parents was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, the question, how come God heals some people and doesn't, or or, are we ever going to see a healing or a miracle, and we sing it, a miracle can happen now? I I think there are moments and there's reasons in suffering that God says, I have done this, and Jesus didn't say this for every instance of suffering, but in this one, he said, this specific instance, because God works in all the variables, and he knows what he's doing, and he has a plan, he says, in this instance, God's going to get the glory. And I allowed him to go through this suffering so that he can receive healing and be a witness to me. Now, does God do that every time? No, no, not necessarily. So how can we trust that he will? Not your job. You just pray. You just believe. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Go for it. 
never get into the, 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 the state of, well, I just, I don't know if God can do that. God can. And I've seen it. And I've experienced it. And I know he can do mighty things. And he can get glory out of suffering in a miracle, but also in other ways. Look at this. Number two, suffering can also allow us to give proof of the genuineness of our faith and even serve to purify our faith. First Peter 1 through 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think sometimes we go through trials and he allows suffering because he's working something out of us. He's not just trying to say, I want to make you happy, but I want to make you holy because the goal is for you to know me. And so God allows things to test us and make sure we want him and not just his stuff, like a bad marriage, but that we ultimately want him. He'll allow that, and Peter would say that. All the apostles were ultimately tested in dying for what they believed. The, the apostle Paul, in fact, who we'll hear from, for some evidence and reasons why suffering is, can be promoted ultimately and worked out as good. Apostle Paul, he didn't come to the altar in some like dramatic thing and like clouds and, and the music was bumping and everything was going good. And he's like, yes, I give you my life, God, because I know you're going to turn everything around and give me a new job and everything's going to work out. Apostle Paul's altar call, his very altar call was, come and follow me. I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer for my name. There was something he had in him, and yet the joy within him and the love and the power he had in ministering came through his suffering. Number three, severe trial also provides an opportunity for believers to demonstrate their love for one another as members of the body of Christ to bear one another's burdens. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Galatians 6, 2 says, Bear one another burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The theologian D.A. Carson says this, Experiences of suffering engender compassion and empathy and make us better able to help others. 2 Corinthians 1, 4 says, who comforts us, God comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. When I've gone currently and going through suffering, whether it's emotionally, physically, the things going on in my life, I thank God for the people of God and the community that come alongside. And you know what? If God just eradicated all that, we wouldn't experience that kind of community in the midst of tragedy. And God wants us to because he wants us to bear with one another. Not just champion each other, you're awesome, but also comfort each other. And I'm sorry, and I'm here for you. If you've never experienced that kind of community and comfort, it's life-changing. Number four, suffering also plays a key role in developing godly virtues and in deterring us from sin. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Paul says this, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, 
a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. The psalmist in 119, Psalm 119.71 says this, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The places that Christianity has grown the most are in places of extreme suffering and persecution. In fact, if you're in China, currently, even but more so a few decades ago, your altar call wasn't come and everybody loves you and God loves you and accept him, but come and if you give your life to God, you're going to be persecuted, maybe lose your family, your house, your very life. And yet it's in that place hundreds of thousands of people came to know Christ. Because when we are comfortable, we don't seek after the comforter. And God says, I'm okay with making you uncomfortable because it makes you long and need the Holy Spirit, the comforter. You you need me. And so that affliction is, is momentary, but in order to draw you to him and to make you want him. And you say, well, why? God could use a million different ways. Well, you would have to trust that in all his knowledge and the variables that he has, that's the only way he could get your attention. Now, that's not my wish. I hope we can be comfortable and thriving and successful and God blesses. I think that's God's ultimate will as we see one day. But now we have yet to see a church, a people that have been able to handle great prosperity and success and holiness and passion for God. Because as we get comfortable, as one person says, God comforts the afflicted and he afflicts the comfortable. And we see that evidence. Last one. Evil and suffering can awaken in us a greater hunger for heaven. For that time when God's purposes for these experiences will have been finally fulfilled. When pain and sorrow shall be no more. Revelation 21.4 says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And I love 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, that says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He says, my perspective is so much larger that even what I'm going through in this persecution and these change and the suffering is nothing compared to the glory I'm going to have. So I can go through whatever because I am not chained on this earth. I'm truly free. I'm free to know that God is good and all-powerful and all-knowing, even if I don't feel it in the moment right now because I just know it and I trust it. Now you might say that's all good for you man. You don't know what my family's going through, what I'm going through the kind of suffering I've gone through. You might say all that like intellectually okay I get that and I see how that can help but I'm hurting right now and I've, I've got suffering and pain and I would say that's the reason actually go to God not to run from him or to discount him. 
Because even if he doesn't, although he can and he might relieve your suffering in the moment, his goal is eternal relief. His goal is eternal peace for you. And he wants to accomplish that goal starting now. In fact, the scripture, when I've gone through suffering and pain and struggle, here's the scripture. I'm just going to be, just this is me personally, that I go to and I love. Hebrews 4, 14, 16, and we're closing with this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. I love this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know what he says? I love this. I love this so much. Because if you're feeling pain or you've battled with this idea of suffering and evil, why would God do this? What's going on? And you feel it. Not intellectual. It doesn't matter because you're just, you're feeling it. You're in the moment. Here's the beautiful part. God, it says this, God is not a high priest sitting on a throne looking down at everybody with his jewels and, and angels worshiping him and just casting and just like, okay, I'm going to make you suffer and I'm going to make you suffer because I'm going to create something in you. And I don't, I don't really care. I don't really feel this is just what you do. Because see, he's God. So God's never lost. He's God. God's never been rejected. He's God. He's created everything. God's never died or felt pain because he is God. And yet that same God is the God that said, I will actually come to earth and become a man to feel pain and feel rejection, to empathize with you. And you don't serve a high priest that just sits on his high horse, but one that came down and was persecuted and beaten and shamed. And I don't know if that does anything for you, but it does everything for me in the midst of it. Not only because I could say, Jesus probably understands what I'm going through, but that I can actually say way more he understands. Because this man was persecuted worse than I can ever imagine, and he didn't deserve a bit of it. He was sinless. And this man chose to come from a lofty place to a lowly place to be beaten and abused. And this man, the Bible says, he didn't just experience sin like we do in its effects. He became sin, and God turned his back. Let me tell you, God's never fully turned his back on you. He's maybe let you go to your things, but not fully. But he did to Jesus in that moment. And Jesus felt shame and rejection and pain like you've never experienced. And he didn't deserve it, but he took it. That's the God we serve. One that chose to say, I will die. I will have pain. And this so that you can have life. Because I'm not going to eradicate evil and kill everybody, but I'm going to go to the source and the heart, and I'm going to make a way to create a new heart so that now you can not only be comforted and not only comfort others, but you can do what the Bible says Jesus came to do, destroy the works of the enemy. This is the power of God and what he does with the problem of sin and evil. He conquers it. He experiences it. For me, this changes everything. It's not just a God out there dealing, but a God here dealing 
Thank you, God. And this is our time to worship. And I want to ask you to stand to your feet in our time, especially if you're a believer in here, to say, God, I know how I feel when I suffer and the problems I have. I can't imagine the suffering and pain you've gone through. I didn't choose mine. You're choosing it for me to do something of good ultimately. But you did choose yours. And then you conquered it by raising from the dead. That's a God worth worshiping. Not admiring, not listening to, not talking about everyone. So that's a God worth worshiping. And that's what church is about. Is being able to deal with these problems, but ultimately look to Jesus and stare to the glory of the gospel and what he has done and say, thank you that you have made a way to destroy this evil and to relieve, but also to comfort. Your will be done, God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of your gospel. Let it change our lives, Lord. Not just be something we profess or confess at one moment and move on. It's something we give our life to. 